Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The scriptures say that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, let the church of Jesus Christ say. Church, I want to make two rather unconventional interpretive moves in today's sermon about this very familiar text of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke, what you probably know as the parable of the prodigal son. Two unconventional readings, two hot takes that hopefully will sharpen our already keen sense about this familiar parable of Jesus Something that will, I think, make the shining heart of this parable shine a bit brighter. For those who know the story, it will come as no great surprise to you that this story is from beginning to end a story about the extravagant grace and love and mercy of God. Sorry to spoil things so early for you, but no matter what unconventional line of interpretation we might try out today, it is impossible to get away from the radical central claim of this parable. That like the father in the parable who goes above and beyond in his welcome of a wayward child, so God is to those who have sinned and gone off into their own distant countries. But truth be told, church, I think that this story that Jesus tells to some leading religious folks is actually a bit more offensive than that summary lets on. I think that this parable has the power to continue to deeply offend us today, especially those of us who, like myself, bear a remarkable similarity to the older brother. The lectionary reading today gives us the first two verses of chapter 15 before getting into the parable proper. And we find out that Jesus has been sharing meals repeatedly with tax collectors and those who the religious establishment deemed, quote, sinners. And the establishment is quite perturbed. You didn't just share meals with anybody in Jesus' day. You shared meals with people you viewed as your social equals. You shared meals with people you believed were in the same social strata as yourself. Nobody, 
Nobody trying to be faithful to God's law sat down for a meal with a tax collector. They lied. They took egregious sums in taxes and tolls. They worked in league with the anti-Jewish foreign occupying force. And above all, they targeted their fellow Jews for profit. Same with people who were called simply, quote, sinners. They were those whom religious, the religious establishment viewed as outside of the law, sometimes for good reasons. They maybe worked in trades that caused them to come in contact with unclean substances or people. They violated Sabbath commands, or they just lived in such a way that numerous of God's laws were constantly and unrepentantly being broken. Again, Jewish folks trying to love God with all their heart would not, in those days, sit down for a meal with somebody outside of God's laws in this way. They just didn't consider themselves to be operating at the same level. They didn't consider themselves to really be inhabiting the same world. So the Pharisees and scribes, the expert religious leaders, the people who wrote all the best-selling religious books and who pastored the biggest megachurches and who took interviews with Fox News and CNN, those Pharisees and scribes complained loudly and publicly in the general direction of Jesus that he's doing everything wrong. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them, was their complaint. And in reply to them, Jesus tells not one, not two, but actually three parables. Three stories of people who lose one thing and who go searching for it. One is about a shepherd who loses one sheep out of a hundred but who sets aside the 99 to go and find the missing one. Another story is about a woman who loses one coin out of 10, but who scours the house until she finds the missing coin. And then Jesus gets to the climactic third parable about a man who doesn't lose one thing, but has lost two things. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but maybe a more preferable title is the parable of the lost sons. But even more preferably, it might be called the parable of the annoying, extravagant love of a father. You know the story. A man has two kids. The younger decides he wants his inheritance early. A convenient way in those days of saying, I wish you were dead, to his dad. So he convinces his dad to liquidate the assets, give him his share, which his father weirdly does. And the younger son cashes that check, hops on a private jet, and spends the rest of the money prodigiously, extravagantly, profusely, on what Jesus simply calls dissolute living. The kind of living that doesn't ask whether something is right or wrong, legal or illegal, but only does it taste good, does it feel good, does it look good. It's the ultimate treat-yourself lifestyle. It's the penthouse in Vegas with fake friends enjoying nightly bottle service and posting Instagram selfies of 3 a.m. limo cab rides home kind of lifestyle. But his bank account bottoms out because, of course, it does. And he's stuck with room charges he can't afford. 
And now there's a severe famine in that part of the world, so he heads out to the farm country and finds a place with a help desperately needed sign out front, and he gets a job taking care of a guy's pigs, which for a Jewish audience listening to this would have been a clear sign that things had truly hit rock bottom for this kid. So one day, after he catches himself staring at a bite of the food the pigs are going to eat and wishing for it, he gets a clear look at himself and how far he's sunk down into this void, and he realizes that his dad hires people who have way more food than he's got right now. And so he cooks up a great plan. He's going to go and get hired as one of his dad's hired hands. So as he dumps a bucket of pig food into their trough, he comes up with a great apology line. Father... I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. He rehearses it over and over and over again. He's got it down, so he starts heading home. But when his town is in sight, and as he enters the gates of the city, suddenly there is a commotion. And now there's this older man in his mid-fifties. Sorry, Paul. Or perhaps in his mid-60s, sorry, Carl. <laughs> and this guy's barreling down the streets of the city in his direction. Everyone is thrown into a panic as this crazed older gentleman is rushing through the streets and the kid realizing that the man rushing towards him is not a stranger, but it's his dad, which is something that dads didn't do in those days. And the dad greets him with a huge bear hug and lots of tears of joy. The kid tries out his line, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he stops there. I don't know if the ink on his hands ran out and he forgot what the next line was. But he never asks him for a job. He just leaves it there. The dad calls to his servants and tells them to get his son a fresh robe, a new ring, some sandals, which tells us that this kid was looking pretty rough at this point. Oh, the dad says, let's go and butcher the 4-H calf so we can throw a public feast. And the reason for all this, the dad puts it this way, the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they go back up to the house and the servants get this kid a fresh robe and a new ring and some sandals. And the others go and butcher the calf and the others go into the village to summon people to a party later that night. And everyone is pumped except for one guy, the older brother, the kid's older brother brother, the one who normally would have had a starring role at parties like this, the one who would have given an impassioned toast to the guest of honor and went around making sure that everyone had plenty to eat and drink, the one who was his father's representative in all matters, even festive ones. Yeah, he's out in the fields, and no one told him anything about what's happened, which was probably for the best, because can you imagine what kind of toast this guy is going to give to his younger brother? So he starts to head back up to the house, and he hears music, and he hears dancing, and what's going on, he demands. Oh, that, the servant says, it's a citywide feast in honor of your brother. Didn't you know he's back? 
Your dad threw a party in his honor, and he's even butchered the best calf in the barn. Everyone's up there. Well, the older brother becomes angry. He refuses to go in, and he sits on the porch, listing off all of the ways his younger brother made his life harder. He's listing off all of the things that his younger brother did wrong. He's wrapping himself up in his anger and indignation like it's a blanket and the temperature just dropped two dozen degrees. He sits on the porch and he refuses to come in. And so his dad comes out and pleads with him, which again is something dads didn't do, pleads with his son to come in and celebrate. Are you kidding me? The son says, celebrate. I've been working like a slave for you my entire life, and I have never been given anything close to this level of honor. And my brother comes home from using his inheritance to pay for prostitutes, and you are throwing this kind of party. The subtext there is, what is the matter with you? In his last appeal, the father says, son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is already yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. And the story in the gospel ends right there. The chapter in Luke's gospel ends right there on the front porch with a joyous party happening inside the house and the older brother on the outside refusing to be a part of this. And all of this is an answer to the complaint of the Pharisees who said this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now I promised two unconventional interpretations, so let's get started. First, church, I am not convinced that the younger brother was actually sorry for what he did to his dad and older brother. The text tells us that after the money was gone, and only after he was hungry that he, quote, came to himself. But that tells me nothing about the depth of his self-examination, only that the struggle of his moment was somehow crystallized for him. He realized not that he sinned and caused injury, but that his dad's servants have more food than he does. In fact, I'm not even sure he could specifically tell you what he think he did, what he thought he did wrong. His reason for returning home in the first place was entirely self-focused. He was hungry and he's chasing his next meal. His confession scripted. It sounds like he's practicing a little speech, and when it comes to actually delivering it, it's not even completely delivered. Notably missing is the part where he says, "Treat me like one of your hired hands." Even the words that he uses in his confession are incredibly generic. I have sinned against heaven and before you. It says nothing about what he actually did wrong. It's more like he shows up and says, look, Dad, you know what I did. And I'm sorry. Where's the food? Is he actually repentant? Is he sorry for demanding a share of the inheritance and the shame that that would have brought to his father? Is he sorry for leaving town and not pitching in around the house? Is he sorry for the emotional burden that his departure would take on the family? Is he sorry for wasting all of his dad's resources? Is he sorry for all the extra work that his older brother had to do to cover his absence? We don't know. 
He never mentions anything about how his sin impacted the whole family. He doesn't mention his older brother at all. Rather, he simply says what he thinks he needs to say in order to get a meal. But if that's true, and if at first the son isn't sorry at all, if he's there for the wrong reasons, then what does that do to the radical welcome and love that the father shows in the parable? And it tells me that the most important thing to the father is that his son has returned to be with him, near him, under his roof. True repentance, lasting change, these things can come later over time. But what is of preeminent concern is that his son, who was dead, is alive again and with him. That's my first hot take. Here's my second. I think that the story is actually designed to make us very sympathetic to the older brother. And as a metaphorical older brother myself, someone who really didn't have a wild chapter in my life, I am incredibly sympathetic to his case. And that this story was told to a group of religious older brothers makes a lot of sense to me. Think about it. Number one, the older brother, he's been faithful at home, doing the work that is appointed to him. Number two, he has had to witness his dad's restlessness about his younger brother over the years. He's had to watch his dad look at the newspaper headlines. He's had to watch his dad read the obituaries to see, did I miss something? He remembers the day that his brother demanded that inheritance. He stood there and watched as his younger brother waited for his dad to write the check, how he took the money and turned his back on the whole family, and he betrayed all of their honor. Number four, maybe his, this older brother is convinced that had the money not run out, this kid would still be out there. Maybe he's acutely aware that this kid doesn't mean a single word of his repentant speech. Number five, the older brother wasn't even told about the party. No one thought to ask his opinion. He didn't even get to weigh in before more family resources are spent on someone who's not even there for the right reasons. Why didn't anyone ask him what he thought? When you're an older brother, you've got opinions. Right, older brothers in the room? We have opinions about things, and people should just consult us when they want to do something, because we've got ideas. Finally, the older brother wonders, where is his goat? <laughs> this is a question all of us have asked. Where's our young goat? We just want a small party. We just want some recognition for all that we've done. We just want someone to come alongside and say, look, I see all the work you've been putting in. Here's your celebration. He feels strangely uncelebrated. And if the story is designed to make us at least cultivate a bit of sympathy for this older brother who is shouldering a significant burden in the text, it says even more about the actions of the father. For the father doesn't ask the older brother for permission to throw this party, nor does the party revolve around the older brother at all. It turns out, just like his younger brother, this older brother is a son in his father's house, and his father gets to call the shots. He can choose to either go in and celebrate or stay on the porch and whine, but the party keeps going. Beyond my two little fun thought experiments regarding these two brothers, 
we would be remiss if we did not highlight, underline, draw arrows to, and put bright flashing LEDs around what we see the Father doing in this story, because I think that's exactly what Jesus does. In some way, I think Jesus offers us this parable as a character statement about God, one that explained his own choices and actions, and I think that the church remembered it in this gospel because this parable serves as a reminder for what it means to be the church and be the body of Christ doing the things that Jesus did. So let's get straight to it, church. If you are searching for a church family who obsesses itself with wondering why people are actually sitting in the pews. If you are looking for a church who is going to constantly measure the quality of the repentance of others, you need to keep looking, because that is not here. Every Sunday we throw a party, and we welcome everybody who shows up, no matter how serious their faith commitment, no matter how weak their repentance, no matter whether they fit into our convenient social structures of who's in or who's out or who gets it right and who's getting it wrong. I don't care whether or not the people in these pews are the people you would pick or the people you would hope show up. Whoever comes in these doors is one more beloved child of God who might be asking themselves deep down the words that they don't even know Am I worthy to be called a child of God or not? And if our answer is anything less than get a robe and a ring and some sandals, then we've got some soul searching to do as a church. Jesus does not question the motives of the tax collectors or the sinners who are sitting at his table. The father doesn't probe the motives of the son who returns from a distant country. And so neither is our job to wonder if the repentance of others is true or real or valid. Because the point of Jesus' parable cannot be the repentance It can't be because the repentance that we see here is so timid and self-serving. The younger brother wants food. He's coming home for a meal, not to make amends. The point of the parable isn't the repentance. It's the son's decision to come home. And it's the father's decision to not even wait until he gets there to welcome him there. Whoever passes through these doors, no matter who they are, what they look like, no matter what the behavioral norms you believe they have violated, no matter why you think they're here, none of that matters to Jesus, and none of that should matter to us. The point is that in coming here, they have come home. They are in the place where, with us, we can draw near to Christ, to the good news that they are also part of God's new creation, that the old has gone and the new has come, and here they might be treated as social equals, as brothers and sisters, as people worthy of our love, compassion, and joy. Maybe that makes us uncomfortable. How do we know they're here for the right reason? Shouldn't they change first so we know that they're serious? I just can't agree with how they live their lives. These are all the scripts of the older brother who could not bring himself to come into the party despite his dad's pleading. There was no way he's going into this party. And even if he did, he'd be the worst party guest ever, dour-faced and angry and just sucking all the joy out of that room. 
To the church on this fourth Sunday of Lent, the word of the gospel is both a comfort and a challenge. It comforts us to know that God rushes to us, to welcome us, to wrap us in his arms, even when our repentance is forced and maybe for selfish gain. But in the arms of the Lord, we find love and welcome and hope and a chance to be reconnected to God's new creation work. But this word is also challenging because it means that us older brothers must leave behind our resting judgmental face that we use towards those who are here but who aren't exhibiting the same standards that we are. We're challenged by this gospel to leave the front porch behind and to come into the party God is already throwing for people who don't measure up to our preferred way of life. If we can do this, We will find ourselves drawn further up and further in in the way that leads to life everlasting. But if we cannot, then our world will become small and cold and hostile to joy. Here at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, we are trying to be a place that is about that ministry of reconciliation that Christ entrusted to his church. Here we announce weekly not a new paradigm of morality, but instead we announce by word and deed a whole new creation that is defined no longer by in and out, but by proximity to Jesus Christ. If that makes you uncomfortable... If you think that the point of church is to hold a doctrinal line on this issue or that issue or to go to war against our culture whenever it violates something we think is important, well, you're going to be uncomfortable here for a while, I suspect. If you're worried that we just might welcome anyone to this church, well, let me clear something up. Yes, we will. In our desperate desire to follow after Jesus Christ, we will throw open our arms and welcome to anyone who comes in these doors because that is exactly what Jesus did and that is precisely what he instructed us to do. For we do not put stock in our own feeble acts of repentance, but we put stock in the grace and mercy and love and the power of Christ that is at work within each of us, shaping every one of us to be children of God, purging us of all the chaff in our life. Calling us his beloved children, giving us robes and rings and sandals, and who refuses to entertain the notion that there is anything we could ever do that would cause us to stop being his beloved child. May we be a church that welcomes all those who are lost. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.